welcome to the Sport and History podcast. Today we're showcasing the work of another postgraduate member. Uh, so as I always say, do remember we are keen to promote the excellent work of our postgrad and early career research members. Uh, so please get in touch with me. It's, uh, it's Katie here. Um, if you are interested in being involved, you can find my email address on the BSSH website. Um, and today we're talking to Max Portman. Max is a doctoral candidate at the University of Chichester and he's working on a PhD exploring the relationship between West Ham United and the East London community. His current title, and I say that because I know what it's like, titles can change, uh, is How West Ham United Operates as a Nexus of Communities Since 1981. Uh, Max, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, no, it's absolutely my pleasure. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more uh, about what your actual your PhD work is aiming to do? Well, um, it's a couple of things my PhD is aiming to do. The first one is aiming to fill the gap that um, Charles Core has kind of left since he published his book on West Ham back in the 80s. And in what we 35, 36 years now, that you've got this huge gap in literature, you're missing Hillsborough and the Premier League and all these things and how drastically East London and West Ham as a club have changed. And it's also trying to build an understanding of how football, business, community, and all of that has changed almost in 40 years in East London. That's the idea of what we're trying to go for. So it kind of brings in those kind of broader elements of changes in the football landscape as well. Yeah, yeah, that would be the idea. So in 40 years, you've got the Premier League, you've got Hillsborough, Bradford, you've got everything massively changing. And as well, you've got East London massively changing. You've got the building, rebuilding of the Docklands. You've got this huge push towards gentrification in the area. And it's just trying to understand, you know, how has East London changed from what it's been remembered at? Because you think, when you think of East London, you think of the Blitz spirit, you think of Cockneys, you think of EastEnders almost. And now you've got this whole new East London that, really doesn't reflect that that popular culture almost reflects so that's yeah. what we're going ah. um and what what made you decide on this as a topic area obviously there's a, a partly a, a gap in the research but any other reasons for it uh originally um i wanted to do all about london you know talk about how london's changed since the second world war especially in football terms anyway uh because there is that huge gap in the literature missing that matt taylor picked up on in the association game and um it would, and I said to Dion in my first ever meeting with him, look, this is what I want to do. And Dion went, just, you've got to pick one club because, you know, this is the main thing. Um, Dion being Dion Giorgio, my supervisor. And he said, one club, one club only. And I'm a West Ham fan. So in my mind, there was one club and one club only. I think if I'd written about any other club, the love, the passion wouldn't be there in my project, really. Yeah. And you're, you're right, aren't you, that... It's really important to have a PhD topic that you're passionate about and that you kind of want to study. Oh, 100%, because I think if you're doing something you don't love, you know, it's, you know, you, you, you won't connect with it as well, you know. And to this, it's almost a labour of love, I find, at some point, you know. It's just like yeah. my nine to five, so this is my labour of love. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, I mean, I won't hold it against you being from the opposite end of London. I'm from West London originally, and obviously... Uh, how's am I? My, my oh okay so my local team was Brentford so uh, my local team's QPR so you know oh, okay my, yeah my dad's from East London so that's kind of how we fell into West Ham oh okay no that's that's fair enough um in fact I well I went to I did my history A level um within basically spitting distance of Griffin Park so uh, oh wow 
Um, even though I'm now on the south coast, whenever I used to take students on trips up to, we sent the students to Lords for like a sports history trip. Oh, yeah. As we went over the little flyover, I was like, right, everyone, you all need to turn to the right, <laughs> and you can see you can see the floodlights of the mighty Griffin Park. <laughs> I think they just thought I was mad. But um, is the park still there, or is it now? Um, it'll be now the Brentford Community Stadium, won't it? Yeah, so they so they have moved. I don't know what they've done with the site because I'm down here on the on the south coast now. But um, it's you know it's nice to see them in the Premier League where they yeah. finally deserve to be. Anyway, hundred oh, percent. We are we're drifting away from the point. Um, so obviously you you've got quite far into research so far. So kind of what are the some of the key things, kind of like the, the headline things that your research has uncovered thus far? Oh, I think in terms of sport, uh, West Ham uh, of changed dramatically over 40 years you've gone from being this club that's London's club almost to being a club that's London's fourth club now you know you've got the big three teams in Arsenal Chelsea and Spurs that take up a lot of the support in London yeah and then you've got the little conclaves of clubs like Millwall, Charlton, Brentford, Fulham and West Ham's kind of there just tucked in the backgrounds almost to an extent it's the fourth club but it's always trying to catch up with that big four and a big throw, a big three, and trying to make it the big four. And it very much struggles a lot of the time, sometimes to its own detriment because it tries too hard. And other times it's just there's no fire in the club at times, you know, to do it. It kind of is happy to stay in its little box and be happy where it is. So in terms of community, um, there's a huge push towards gentrification. Over the last 40 years, um, you can look at Shoreditch and Dalston as perfect examples of that. And any modernisation in East London isn't really pushed towards helping people. It's pushed towards profit. It's pushed towards it's pushed towards making it look nicer and to a very to a more affluent class almost, not to the working class people who essentially, you know, are left behind almost. So you've got this huge idea of wealth disparity in East London. You think of, it's mad because you look at Tower Hamlets and it's one of the poorest areas in the country, but yet it's almost, you know, it's one of the most expensive places to live in the whole country, you know, by square foot. And it's just this huge disparity. And you just, it's almost mental to think that, you know, you've got this huge disparity and it don't link up almost in a lot of ways. Yeah. And how, how has that kind of gentrification gone over with like West Ham fans? Um, it's, it's a bit of a weird one because you have got a new breed of supporter in football. So I think a lot of the older supporters are quite heartbroken for it in like a nostalgic way. Mm. So it's easy to fall into that trap and be like, I remember when East London was like this and that, and which is a bit of a weird one because East London, when I start my thesis, is essentially a wasteland. So what are you reminiscing about? Yeah. Yeah. And now it's, I think it's an understanding that we had to West Ham fans had to move to Olympic Stadium, but it's not been without its challenges, which I know we're going to discuss later on in this interview. So, yeah, fab. Um, so you sent me uh, a chapter from your uh, thesis, which I really enjoyed, um, and you kind of briefly mentioned at, at the start of that chapter that there was a promise kind of made to local businesses mm. around West Ham's previous stadium um, that they would kind of be supported after the move. Um, I just wondering kind of what happened with that. I just basically want to know a little bit more because I found that really interesting. I want to know what happened and yeah. 
Uh, well, the first place, if anyone really wants to start, is um, there's a YouTube site called TIFO Football. Most people will probably know it out there. And they did a great video on it called West Ham United and the Bowling Community. And reading about it at the time, and that video is a huge, um, it gives you a great understanding, you know, of the basic issues. But when we were leaving the stadium in 2014, 2015, uh, a lot of the clubs, there's a lot of, there was a lot of stalls, there was program sellers, fanzine sellers, the pubs, the cafes, and just businesses that relied on that match day income went to the club and said, you know, when we, when you leave, you're going to take all of this with us. What, how are you going to support us? Are we going to move to the stadium with you? Or are you going to give us, you know, like a, a payoff almost to like supplement our income when we have to shut down our businesses? But the, especially like the sweet sellers and the burger vans and stuff, they have to find somewhere new. And David Gold, who funnily enough grew up on Green Street, right opposite the stadium, came out as the mouthpiece of the club and very much said, yes, we'll support you, we'll give you money, we'll support you in any way we possibly can. But yet when we moved to the Stratford in 2016, there was nothing from the club, complete radio silence. And it's sad because in the last five, six years since we've moved, a lot of that area around Upton Park has completely disappeared. Uh, you've got great businesses that were there, like Ken's Calf that had been there for 50, 60 years. Nathan's, which was a pie and mash shop that shut down. Urkans, you've got all these places that have just completely shut down. And the only things that have really survived around there, and to be fair, the Bolin, which, is a, which was always a well-known pub for being West Ham, for being like a West Ham pub, that shut down and it's only thankfully been saved by someone who just has a love of the pub and just saved it so it's very lucky in that respect it's been done up and it looks fantastic but that almost went as well and it's just sad to think that you know the club who's so entrenched in east london almost left it to rot and die almost yeah. and it's kind of that's also another thing i figured out with my thesis is that you know as much as the club is very much entrenched in the community and does a lot of great community work it's still a business at the end of the day and it will be run for profit and the club comes before everything else at the end of the day yeah yeah um, absolutely so there's a yeah. lot of talk was kind of given but the actual yeah. backup exactly. wasn't really necessarily there exactly yeah um i mean obviously you've mentioned the fact obviously the move to uh mm. to stratford in the the former olympic stadium mm. um i've been there uh yeah. for lots of things i went there during the olympics the paralympics i've been there for baseball um, you see my beloved Yankees. I've been there for music <laughs> concerts. Um, so I, I love the place, but I'm kind mm-hmm. of interested in how West Ham fans feel about their new home. Oh, it's a bit of a tricky one, this, because it's a very much like the Arsenal move to the Emirates. So because it's been five, six years, we've had the pandemic. Since the pandemic's come back and the club have actually tried to make it more like home, you know, they've tried to square off the stand and try to bring fans closer to the pitch in some ways. It's starting to feel more like home. And this season, you know, West Ham have had this great run in Europe. They're pushing for Champions League football. So memories are being made now. It's uh, Slavan Bilic said it on Sky Sports the other day, fantastically, because they asked him talking about it. And he said... After a while, you know, it's like moving into a house and after a few years, you move the things in that you want and you make it home. And I think that's what West Ham's finally doing now. And the club are trying to push for this in some ways. And in some ways, they're not doing themselves any favours by hiking up season tickets this week and um, 
just not try, generally not pushing hard enough right at the beginning. But there's also, you've got this, a lot of older fans and a lot of fans who very much still hold Upton Park in the highest esteem. So to them, it will never really be home. I mean, Olas, which was a huge um, fan scene up until we left Upton Park. So Overland and Sea is the acronym for it. And um, they very much were like, it isn't home. It's not us. We don't want to, we're not going. So you've got, it's kind of split, but it's starting to become home for West Ham fans, slowly but surely. Yeah. So as more memory, like you say, as, as more memories are being made there, yeah. uh, people are becoming kind of warming to it. But what was, yeah. I mean, what was it like at, at first, kind of when they kind of first moved in? Was it, um... it? It was. It was like going to a museum almost. You know, everyone. Everyone was there. People were enjoying what was there to an extent, but you weren't really engaging with it almost. Yeah. It felt it felt almost like a out of almost like an out of mind experience. It was quite weird because you just stood around. It was just stood around. You knew it was we were playing there. You knew the team on the pitch was West Ham, but it just didn't feel right. Almost it felt like yeah. it felt wrong. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously, one of the things you kind of touched on in the the chapter you you sent me is kind of the kind of politics, I suppose. Uh, behind it and you know, there's been a lot of controversy of West Ham moving in there in the first place from various bits of bits and pieces but you know can you tell me kind of a little bit more about how like local and central government have used the stadium as a, as a way of scoring political points I suppose against one another and kind of how how West Ham intertwined within that that kind of political side of things? Well I think to get an understanding of what how government kind of are involved with the stadium you have to kind of go before the chapter i sent you which is focusing on 2016 to now and very much the conservative government who were and the, the local and the central government at the time in london were, were um very much adamant you know we've secured the legacy of the stadium we're not going to go the same way as athens where that stadium's there costing huge costs to the taxpayer with no use whatsoever so and also with the millennium dome which is a couple of miles up the road everyone saw how bad it could be to have a, like a, a a white elephant sitting there so everyone very much sat there and they went we're going to use the stadium we're going to give it to west ham it'd be great it'd be fantastic so that was the conservative standpoint that we secured the legacy of the stadium it's great it's fantastic we've done it well done us pat on the back and um and when labor came in under sadiq khan in 2016 uh, they were very much, mm, well, you know, this is around the same time that the whole fiasco about the stadium came out, that West Ham were getting the stadium for peanuts. They were only paying two and a half million pounds rent. I think all in all, I think it cost West Ham at the moment four million pounds a year to run that stadium. And the taxpayer take, co- takes the bulk of that cost. And the taxpayer is paying 20 million pounds a year on that stadium, wow. which Labour came out and kind of said, you know, this is wrong. This is terrible. You know, we're paying £20 million a year. What is it paying for? So you've got, and they're trying to score political points off that. And plus it knocks the previous administration in that respect. We're fair enough being run by Boris Johnson, who is now our prime minister and who still very much maintains it was the best thing to do for the stadium. Mm. And it's very much, it's, you know, it's very much point scoring on either side. So you've got the Tories saying we've secured the legacy, Labour saying yes, but at what cost? So... And West Ham, this is a bit of a tricky one because West Ham, as a club, I don't know where their standpoint is, but they're board members, so especially Karen Brady and David Sullivan. Karen Brady got made a Conservative peer for all her work she did during the work on the Olympics. And 
in a few years, a couple of years after, David Sullivan donated £75,000 to the Conservative Party. So while West Ham fans no doubt have their political allegiances, it's fair to say that, you know, the board members are very much in support of the Conservative Party. Mm. Yeah. So that's how it's intertwined in that respect. So it's a bit of a tricky one because you've got two sides arguing the same thing and then the club themselves kind of going, well, we actually back that side. So... Yeah, and have you looked much at kind of, because obviously, you know, it was national press attention, I suppose, mm. people being mm. kind of horrified and about the money being spent. And then there was mm. other teams that were like, well, we should have gone there and it shouldn't have been yeah. West Ham. Because um, that kind of media reaction, I mean, outside of kind of politics and West Ham fans themselves, but has a lot of that kind of died down or does that still kind of rear up? Um that really has died down. Uh, the only club who were really adamant they deserved that stadium were um, Leighton Orient. Yeah. But looking at Leighton Orient, especially under Barry Hearn at the time, you could argue that Barry Hearn was doing it for his own selfish reasons, not for the club. Mm. And the fact that, you know, having that Olympic stadium would have been such a huge draw for his boxing. So I think there was very much that idea in it that, you know, you could argue that he was using it for his boxing, for his own selfish needs and not thinking of Leighton Orient. Yeah, it would have been a a massive stadium for Leighton Orient to have. Oh, yeah, it's mental. I mean, Leighton Orient are a great club, you know, and they've got a lot of diehard supporters, but they only fill out four or five thousand supporters a week. Yeah, you're asking them to fill out almost at the time it was supposed to be 25,000, so it never would have been plausible, really. No, no, probably would have cost even more to the taxpayers, perhaps, but yeah, um. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting, this kind of backlash about public money. I mean, obviously, my mm-hmm. lot, a lot of my research is about uh, American football. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some teams in the US who are, they get their stadiums paid for by local government. And it's yeah. increasingly getting um, getting a lot of negative press attention that the Buffalo Bills are currently kind of trying to move and have a brand new stadium courtesy of them not having to pay very much. <laughs> People, funny enough, are starting to get a bit sick of this sort of thing. Which is so funny, actually, because you look in football, Manchester City, that Yeti had, is not actually owned by the club themselves. It's owned by Manchester City Council. Yeah, no one really kicks up a stink about that, believe it or not. But I think Manchester City and Manchester City Council have a better understanding of how it works, you know, and it was done properly. It was all above board. Whereas West Ham, it all seems like a shady backroom deal at times when you think about that deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sure there'll be uh, more detail on that in your your finished uh, finished thesis, um, and I think with your sort of project, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously it's looking at a specific area, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but with most projects there are wider implications. So, kind of, what do you think some of those wider implications might be? How how might it be useful to other teams within football or even other sports? Well, you see, this is the tricky one. This is the one that really made me think about it when you sent me over the questions originally. <laughs> and in terms of the local teams, West Ham is very much, it's, it's got a huge own identity on its own. It's the biggest club in East London. And East London is very much, it's almost a city within a city in a lot of ways. You know, like you do get with most big cities, they're almost like areas within big cities that are cities upon themselves. And East London is very much like that. And it's very much a famous neighbourhood, if you think about it, or a famous area in the country. Everyone knows about East London, the East End, 
And West Ham are a very huge part of that. If you think about East London, you think about West Ham, you think about crafty companies, you think about all these different things, all these ideas that pop up in pop culture. And I think the only clubs you could really link it to in that respect, other teams are the teams in the northeast of England. So Newcastle, Middlesbrough and Sunderland, where in the fact that all of them are dock London areas. So you had the huge docks up in Middlesbrough and the huge docks up in Sunderland. And since, you know, since the 80s, they've been shut down systematically. And Sunderland and Middlesbrough, bless them, haven't really recovered from it. Newcastle has to an extent, but still it's, it feels like it's lost that huge part of its identity and what made it what it was and why it's so famous. And I think that's the thing you could talk about in East London. In terms of sports, I don't really think you could link it. Football's such a I idiom onto itself almost so I think there's no way to link it to sports and in terms of the wider implications of the research I think you have to link it back to two and three where we're talking about the community and the business and understanding how essentially East London being almost a community onto itself isn't a community anymore it's very much you know just hot spots of areas where there's wealth and hot spots of areas where there's poverty and just hot spots where there's just nothing in a lot of ways especially around Beckton I mean there's a lot there's been a lot of more building around there since the 90s but still there's a hell of a lot of wasteland still sitting around in East London just being used by no one mm. <clears throat> yeah I mean obviously football because obviously you're looking at kind of West Ham and kind of from a community perspective so mm. yeah any sports that it would be applicable to would have to be one that are very tied into community so obviously football does make the most sense but yeah I think the northeast would be really interesting kind of similar case studies but also yeah. might, might find there are kind of some of the things that you address that um that would they might be able to kind of take on board or or even use perhaps yeah um uh, as well but obviously you kind of get to that as you get towards uh finishing it all up and of course um, yeah. that's, that's the nice part now of um, having finished my first yeah. draft of my phd i can now put a nice neat ribbon around everything yeah absolutely um and then obviously get out there and, um, you know, get to kind of conferences and kind of talk about your research as well. Um, you know, I, I'm quite involved in the uh, International Football History Conference. They would they would love to hear some stuff about that, I'm sure. Um, oh, you get me an in then, hopefully, fingers crossed. A fascinating, uh, fascinating case study. Yes, I'll let you know as soon as Thank I... Thank you very uh, much. As soon as I uh, um, yeah. chat with Gary about, uh, uh, yeah. about the next one. Um, yeah. But kind of on the topic of conferences... You're in the process of organising one at the moment. Um, right. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, when it might be, what it's going to be all about? Uh, so it's through the University of Chichester where I'm doing my PhD. And the I, and the themes we're thinking of the conference are sport, business and community. Funnily enough, we've based it around my thesis. Yeah, why not? Because we think it's we think there's a, you know, there's a lot of good material out there written by a lot of great academics. So we think, you know, there's a lot of things we can touch on. Uh, we're thinking of doing it in the autumn. Uh, that's not a set date yet, but that's the date we're prospective date we're looking at so far. Uh, but whenever things get announced, it will be on um, the University of Chichester official sites. We're going to release it through the um, British Society of Sports Historians as well. And um, yeah, that's essentially where we're at at the moment. Um, just watch this space, really. Yeah, Fab. Are you planning for like a one day or a two day thing? Uh, that's all going to be coming out in June fall, so I have don't have that information. Unfortunately, I haven't yet. got quite that far. No, um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it sounds like a topic that um, will 
it, like you say, there's lots and lots of information out there. So you've got lots and lots of interested yeah. folk uh, involved. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, fab. So, I mean, thanks so much. Is there anything else you want to kind of mention about your work at all? Or uh, No, I think I've covered as much as I can so far. Fab. Um, well, firstly, thanks so much for taking the time to kind of share your research uh, with us. Um, Thank you for having me. No, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely my pleasure. Um, and just a reminder to all the uh, folks listening out there that that we want to hear more from kind of postgrad and ECL members and kind of shout about uh, shout about your research. Um, mm-hmm. So feel free to come on the on the podcast. Uh, don't forget about our playing past prize, which is available um, and will be judged in uh, at our conference. The winner will be announced. Um, so we've got loads and loads of stuff out there for postgrad and ECR members. We've also got a monthly writing group, which is super friendly. So uh, feel free, folks that are interested, to come along to that. It's two hours dedicated to just getting on with some writing, but with a little bit of chit chat at the start and kind of halfway through. Um, and it's a super friendly event. We've got our Facebook page, there are funding opportunities as well. Um, so if you are a postgraduate or uh, early career researcher member, uh, if you're not getting my monthly emails, then please do not hesitate to get in touch because um, it's through those emails that um, I get to hear about the great research that folks like Max are doing. Okay. So, um, so I'll sign off. So until next time, take care, everybody. Bye.